Hey, great to, great to see you. Great to be back um, here with you to worship. Uh, I trust that the songs that we sang, uh, the, the lyrics that are marinating in our mind ministered to your soul. I know it did mine. And uh, every Sunday, I'm just so thankful uh, to be alive and to be able to gather with you to worship our Lord. Well, we turn our attention back to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And uh, I want to start just by thinking through what you and I are watching unfold in America. Uh, For those of you that are online, you're watching television, um, this might sound familiar. A house divided against itself will not what? Stand. And as you know, long before Abraham Lincoln uttered those words, the Lord Jesus warned us how kingdoms fall. Kingdoms fall because of division. A kingdom cannot stand if it's divided, and that's exactly where we are in America right now. The United States is caught in a partisan hyper-conflict that divides politicians, it divides communities. It's dividing mother and brother and sister and relative, even in our own households. We see this, we know this, we feel this, we feel the weight of the media, and I think just in my lifetime, I, I have an experience, maybe you have, but I don't think so. In our lifetimes, we have not experienced the kind of division that's going on in the world. Uh, you think about all that's happening and the chasm that's been created. There's a gridlock over social issues, race and gender and economy. On top of that, we're divided over mandates and masks, pro-choice, pro-life, climate control, Our borders, if you've seen lately, our borders have become a political battlefield and something just as simple as a bathroom for boys and girls has also become a battleground. All of these societal tensions have metastasized into a dangerous kind of tribalism where things have become polarized. And now we no longer just have differences of opinion, but we have differences of opinion and we hate one another in America. And it is a serious, serious threat, not just to our democracy, but I think to humanity at large. You say, well, what what is the answer to all of that? And the answer is really simple. You know what the answer is? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the answer. But when we think specifically, it's not our responsibility to go and solve all of America's problems. We're not going to be able to do that. But the church should live in such a way that we're bringing attention, we're shining light on the beauty of Christ and the glory of the gospel. If we're to do that, church, the church, unlike America, cannot be divided. The church of all things needs to maintain unity. And when we think about spiritual health and we think about spiritual unity, it's something that is very difficult and takes a long time to attain. And it's something that can so quickly and easily be lost. And you say, how do we lose that? It's very simple. Pride. Selfishness. That's what brings about division. That's what we're experiencing in not just our country, but in our world. So the question we're answering this morning is how do we prevent disunity from happening in the church? How do we ensure that we're thinking the same way like Paul suggests in Philippians 2, that our hearts are beating to the same drum, 
How do we ensure that we're living with the same purpose and the same priorities and the same convictions and the same attitude and the same goals? You say, well, what we did this morning, we recited our mission statement. That's helpful. The members who came on signed off on a doctrinal statement and said, hey, we all believe this. That's helpful. Our 10 ministry priorities that we all agree on, that's helpful. But that's not all. We need something else. All of those things can clarify our unity, but none of them bring about unity. So how can we have unity as a church? Paul gives us the answer in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. There is a particular character quality that brings about a greater unity in the church, and it's this. It's humility. Humility. Now, for those of you that are just joining us, we've been walking through Philippians, and again, Paul is writing to the the church in Philippi, and he's got so many good things to say to this church. He loves this church. He's partnered with this church for many years. He has a great affection for them. They have a great affection for Paul. They love him. They've sent him gifts. They've prayed for him. They've taken care of his needs and they've supported his ministry. So it's almost all good, but yet there's a potential problem in the church there in Philippi. And that problem, unlike the Corinthians, which is really doctrinal, there were so many things going on with the Corinthian church. No, the Philippian church, their potential problem was disunity And so Paul addresses that throughout the letter. Look, disunity is a deadly disease, and disunity has its origin in pride. Pride will always, always, always disrupt unity. And as you read the letter to the Philippians, you see this pride kind of creeping up. There's self-seeking, self-promotion, there's envy, there's rivalry, Paul even goes so far to call out two specific people in the church body, Iodia and Syntyche, and says they're not in harmony. They're actually warring and fighting and rivaling with one another. And so he calls the church, he pleads with the church to come alongside them to help maintain and restore unity. Well, again, the question for us this morning is, how do we overcome this dangerous virus that is called disunity. And the answer again is Christ-minded humility. And that is what chapter two is really all about. And you remember, we said that we don't want to get to the do stuff before we get to the why stuff. Why should we have this unity? Well, because of what God has already done for us in Christ. And when you look there in verse one, we see if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, all those things in verse 1 provide the motivation for why we should be unified. We should be unified as a church because God has done so much for us on our behalf through Christ. And so we look there at the encouragement, the endearment that we're loved by God, the endowment that we have been united by the Spirit of God. We looked at his empathy, that we experience affection and compassion. And because all those things are true, now we know what to do. And those things are listed in verse 2. We're to be unified. That is the mandate. We have the motivation, the mandate. We looked at the marks of unity. And now in verses 3 through 4, Paul gives us the means by which we maintain this unity. 
The means by which we maintain the unity is Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And Paul provides the biblical definition of humility, and he does it here by sandwiching what we're not to be like, how we're not to think, what we're not to do, and then what we are to be like, how we are to think, and what we are to do. Look there in verse 3 with me. He says this, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Uh, In your bulletin, you've got the outline of the notes. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. The means of unity in verses three and four look like this. There's just three things that we need to mortify if we want to preserve and maintain unity. And there are three things that we need to mature in if we want to do the same. Those things that we need to mortify are selfish ambition, vainglory, and self-interest. The three things that we need to mature in are Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And when we come back, we've looked at now the motivation, the mandate, We've looked at the marks, the means, and then we'll look at the model that Christ provides in verses 5 through 11. Here's the main idea for today if you're taking notes. Biblical unity is maintained in the church when we personally and corporately mortify the sin that destroys unity and mature in the graces that promote unity. So that's a handful there. Well, that's okay because this is important for us to get. Let me say it one more time. Biblical unity is maintained in the church when we personally and corporately mortify. We put to death the sin that destroys unity, and we, in contrast, mature in the graces that promote unity. So the oneness of mind that Paul calls us to, the oneness of love, the the oneness of soul, the oneness of goal, all of that, listen, can only be actualized by Christians. The reason why we're not seeing this in the world is because the Spirit of God is not promoting this Christ-like humility. And even as redeemed sinners, those that have been saved by grace through faith, we face challenges. There's Satan, there's the flesh, there's the world that wants so desperately to disrupt our unity. And listen, church, if we allow pride, if we allow selfish ambition, if we allow self-centeredness to reign in our lives, it will always bring disharmony. It will destroy our unity. And we will not honor God. Instead, we will dishonor God and disrupt our gospel witness. So let's get into what Paul is communicating here. Go back with me in verse 27 of chapter 1, and we're going to read through our text. We're going to pray and then dive right in. Remember, Paul says this in 127. This is the theme of the book. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Paul says, fulfill my joy 
that you think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Oh, Father, would you please allow this this principle of oneness and unity to overshadow whatever division, whatever bitterness, whatever strife, whatever pride, whatever sin is disrupting our unity, Lord, we pray that this message and this text would bring about healing and transformation, would bring about conviction and repentance. We pray this for your glory. Amen. All right, these are the means by which we maintain unity. Let's start off with selfish ambition. That's the first thing that we need to mortify. We need to kill selfish ambition. He says there, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, there are two things that I need to point out right from the get-go. First, in the Greek, there is no do. Paul just kind of abruptly and emphatically says, nothing from selfish ambition. That word in the Greek, nothing, you know what that means? It means nothing, which means that there is never, ever a time that's acceptable for you to be all about yourself. No situation when it's okay just to be all about you. You know, that's a problem because by nature, we're so inwardly focused. Add to that the fuel of the world, constantly being bombarded by social media, by the television, by ads that pop up when you're scrolling through the internet. It's all about you. We live in a me generation. It's all about your health. It's all about your beauty. It's all about your fitness. It's all about your career. It's all about your retirement. Everything in the world says it's all about you. Be about you. And this concept, this idea of being other-centered is so foreign in today's culture. It's my dreams, my body, my fun. We live in a treat-yourself kind of a world. But Paul just doesn't say, don't be about yourself. He says, don't do things according to selfish ambition. You say, well, what does selfish ambition mean? That word, aretheia, it connotes strife, contentiousness, extreme selfishness, a desire to put oneself forward, partisan, partisanship, a factitious spirit. Actually, when you look in Greek literature at that word itself, it's used in the realm of politics. So when we think back just a week ago to the recall, millions and millions of dollars are spent of trying to promote yourself, of trying to put the other guy down. And all that money is spent to trash someone's name and reputation. That is what this word is, selfish ambition. The King James actually defines this as strife. It's the kind of self-seeking, self-promoting attitude that creates and even enjoys division. It causes contention. It causes strife. And the person who's doing it actually enjoys it. And it happens, listen to this, in every relational setting. It happens in the White House. It happens in your home. Sadly, it happens in the church. And Paul says, look, this is not the path to same-mindedness. This is not what's going to bring about greater unity. Selfish ambition does not produce unity. 
Instead, selfish ambition will ruin our Christian witness. No one is going to want to come to church, become a Christian, and follow after Jesus if they're looking at the church and looking at Christians and they can't get along and they're always fighting. What's appealing about that? Now remember, back in 117, if you glance back there, Paul said that some were preaching Christ, and he says this, out of selfish ambition. Remember, those preachers were preaching, but they wanted to cause Paul distress. They intentionally wanted to kick him while he was down. As he's in prison, they wanted to hurt his feelings even more. And the Philippians would have affirmed Paul's rebuke on those men. They would have said, yes, Paul, get them, tell them that they cannot be selfishly ambitious. So imagine how jarring it would have been as Paul now relates this concept of selfish ambition to the context of the church and says, there's selfish ambition among you. Look, I cannot overstate how damaging this is to the unity of our body. That's why James says in James 3.16, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, you know what else exists there? He says, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, James says that later on in life. That's something that James learned very good when he was a disciple of Christ, walking with Jesus, and was himself selfishly ambitious. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Let me show you this. It's just a mature James now giving this instruction not to be jealous, not to be selfishly ambitious. And James, of all people, should know how ugly and disunifying selfish ambition is. Matthew chapter 20, and look at verse 20. You're going to be familiar with this story. It's when the sons of Zebedee have their mom go to Jesus and ask for a place of honor. Look at verse 20. It says, The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. That's Christ. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right and one at your left. Now let me just remind you, these are two grown men, and they have mommy go and do their dirty work. Mommy, can you, can you help in my self-promotion? Can, can you maybe encourage Jesus to, to be on the right and the left, those two positions of honor and authority? Look at what Jesus says. They're reaching for this leadership. They're reaching for recognition. They're reaching for honor. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, that's not for me to give. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by the Father. And when their word of ambition reached the rest of the apostles, what was their response? How do they like the sons of Zebedee going to Jesus with their mom and asking for this position of prominence. Look at what it says in verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Not at mom, the two brothers. They knew it was coming from them. And this is what happens when we try to promote ourselves. This carnal ambition, it raises its ugly head and it causes division even amongst the tight-knit group of the twelve. And Jesus says, look, this, this kind of 
attitude, this kind of mentality, it's only going to create division. You're thinking like the world. This is how pagans think. You think that climbing the ladder of success is going to bring you joy, and it does nothing but the opposite. The pathway to influence is not to push your way to the top. It's not to convince others that you belong there. No, the pathway to the top is to sink low and to serve others. And that's what Jesus' response is. Look at verse 25. It says there, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when Jesus said that, you can imagine the rest of the 10, yeah, Jesus, tell them. Tell those two for being selfishly ambitious. But it's like, wait a second, 10. You guys were upset, even indignant, but not because of their sin. You were indignant because they beat you to the punch. They just asked Jesus before you did because they themselves were self-promoting. You say, Dom, how do you know that? Well, because throughout the Gospels, they're always arguing about what? Which one of them is the greatest? Listen, church, just a little bit, just a little bit of self-promotion, selfish ambition, it will impact our entire church. When we seek to promote ourselves, we want to be first in line, we are always going to cause tension and relational difficulty. You might think that it's a secret desire of your heart and and you're not injuring anybody, but it is infectious. It is a virus and it will destroy the unity of the church. And it comes out. It comes out in what you say. It comes out in how you talk about others and it comes out in how you treat people. Well, in addition to mortifying selfish ambition, Paul adds another prohibition. Look there at the text. He says, we're also to mortify vain glory. Very interesting word. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it's kinodoxia. He'll use this word idea of kino later on when Christ empties himself, but doxia means glory or boasting. And so the word here, it's a compound word. It just means vain conceit. It means empty conceit. And you know, conceit is calling attention to yourself. Glorying in how much better you are than other people are glorying in how much worse someone is than you. I love how the Legacy Standard Bible translates this. It says vainglory. That's literally what it says. This is a boaster in self. It doesn't say conceit. It says vainglory. And the reason why I like that is because there is no legitimate reason for you to boast. You get that? You think that you're all that, and the Bible says you're not. You think you're something great, but there really is no basis for your boast. Vainglory is like a balloon. The larger it stretches on the outside, the bigger the emptiness is on the inside. It's devoid of truth. It's not reality. It's devoid of anything good. It has no eternal value. And at the root of that vainglory is pride. It's the same pride that we read about in our article. 
It's the pride that made man fall. It's the pride that made Satan fall. It's the pride that get you and me in trouble every day. Pride says, look, I know better. I'm the ultimate authority. My perspective is better. My opinion is better. My wisdom is greater. I am more important. I am more worthy. I am more deserving of glory. And you say, well, I would never say that. Well, maybe not verbally, but certainly in the way that you think and act, it's this I, me, my attitude that views the world and others through the lens of self. And the Apostle John, he gives this example of someone who had an extra large exaggerated view of self. In the third letter of John, he writes this in verse 9. He says, I wrote something to the church, some, some instruction, some doctrine, but Diotrephes, and he says this about him, he loves to be first among them. He doesn't accept what we say. Literally, it says, first place loving Diotrephes. First place loving. He had this just inflated view of himself. He was excessively, ostentatiously consumed for his desire for this position. You guys know Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian. He said this about pride. He said, pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It is the most secret, the most deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lust whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin that does so much let in the devil into the hearts of saints and expose them to his delusions than pride. And over and over again, the Bible, time and time again, reiterates how dangerous pride is. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Romans 12, 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 1 Corinthians 8, 2, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Galatians 6, 3, If anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Look, pride is deceptive because you convince yourself that you are something when you are not. And all of us, all of us have this issue. You know, I'm a big Laker fan. And uh, you, maybe you don't care about this. Um, there was a guy on the Lakers. His name was Dennis Schroeder. He was working towards a bigger contract with the Lakers. They offered him, I think, $84 million. He said, no, I am worth more than that. I need at least $100 million. Here's a guy who thought more highly than himself. He lost $74 million because he thought he was better. He didn't get that $100 million contract. He didn't get the $84 million contract. He got five. You say, that's still, that's $5 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, but he had 84 just waiting for him. But he was too good for that. 
That is what pride does. And it is worse in the church. We as believers, we cannot afford to think inaccurately about ourselves. We need to be sober-minded when we think about ourselves. You are not in control. You are not sovereign. You are not all-powerful. You cannot steal God's glory. He doesn't share it with anyone. And so why would we boast? Why would we be arrogant? Why would we think that we were God's gift to humanity? Everything that you have, everything that I have, is owing to God's grace. So the two sins were to mortify here. Selfish ambition, vainglory, but there's another sin that Paul identifies here, and he wants us to kill this in order to maintain unity. It's right there in verse 4. It is self-interest. He says, not merely looking out for your own personal interest. Now, very importantly here at the beginning of verse 4, there's a word in my translation, it says merely. In your Bible, it might be italicized, which means it's not there in the original, but it's added there to kind of smooth out the translation to convey the thought. Literally, it says, not looking to the things of yourself. Now, what's important here is we don't want to go too far because some have interpreted this text and they've went too far. The text is not saying that you're never to look out for your own personal interest. How do we know that? Well, because the Bible tells us over and over again that we are to, to, to pay close attention to our lives, to our doctrine. We're to take care of our bodies. We're to take care of our eyes, the lamp of our heart. We're, we're to take care of our soul's health, our, our physical, our mental, our, our spiritual. All of those things we need to be investing in. We're to be good stewards. We're to work hard. We're to provide for our loved ones. We cannot neglect ourselves. That is not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is, don't only be concerned about yourself. Yes, be concerned about yourself, but don't have a me-first mentality. It is wise, listen, it is wise for you to plan for the future. It is wise for you to take care of your family and your finances and your reputation. That is not what Paul is saying. But there is a way to do this with self at the center, and there's a way to do this as you serve Christ and are thinking about others. Paul's contrast to self-interest is others' interest. So let me just ask you, over the course of the last several months, how much have you thought about people? How much are you prioritizing people? When you look at your checkbook or your credit card statement, how much are you spending and what are you spending on? Are all of your thoughts consumed with you, where you live, how comfortable you are, what kind of food you eat? Are you thinking about others? Paul says, look, we cannot be so self-focused. We need to prioritize other people. Selfish ambition, vainglory, self-interest has no part in the church. If, if we ever start stepping on one another to try to get higher in our positions, if we're walking around with this superiority complex, we think that we're better than other people, if we're smear smearing someone's name just so we can look good, that is destructive and it's straight from the pit of hell. There is no quicker way, church, to dismantle unity than to think and act like you are better than somebody else. 
totally contrary to the gospel. And Paul, listen, he is militant when it comes to fighting against this sin of self-absorption. He knows that pride and self-centeredness and self-preoccupation, it actually decreases our joy. We do it because we think we're going to be happier and more satisfied and more content. But Paul says, no, no, no. That actually dishonors the Lord. It doesn't display the gospel and it decreases your joy. Listen, uh, I had several people over this week who are going through some difficult trials. And I had to remind them and myself, even as I counsel, that trials don't diminish joy because we learned that from James. We're to consider it all joy in the midst of trials. Persecution doesn't decrease joy. It's so amazing when I hear about these saints in Afghanistan who are thrilled to be suffering for Christ's sake. Poverty doesn't kill joy. Look, when affliction comes, when trial comes, our joy can still abound. No, what kills joy, church, is pride and selfishness. That will kill our joy and kill our unity as a church. You say, well, what makes selfish ambition, vainglory, and self-interest so reprehensible? It's when you place it side by side with the person of Christ who, although he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming a slave, and then even to the point of death, yes, death on the cross. You look at Jesus face to face, and here's one who had no reason to humble himself because he is glorious, but he did that willingly, out of love for you and for me, And the expectation is if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to do the exact same thing. You're not going to walk around with an attitude of superiority like you're better than everybody else. Instead, you will humble yourself and you will serve. Paul says, look, this is the sin that we have to mortify. Church, this is the sin that we have to mortify. It's in all of us. No one is sitting here, whether in the pew or here behind the pulpit, that does not have pride, that is not selfishly ambitious that is not so self-consumed. And Paul says, we have to mortify this sin. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, we need the scriptures daily. This is the power. This is the antidote. The spirit of God working through the word of God to mortify that sin for us. There is no such thing as moral reform. This is why America is not just going to figure it out. Oh, we're just not going to become better all of a sudden. No, no, no. What America needs is for us to be unified and to not diminish the witness of the gospel. Now, Paul gives us three graces that we should nurture and mature, and it's in strong contrast. We know that because it says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. These are the three graces that we are to mature in. The first one is humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. If you are a Christian here this morning, listen, this is how you started. This this is how you began the Christian life. You began by humbling yourself. Yes, God humbled you, but you agreed with God about who you are and who he is, and you humbled yourself. No one came to Christ kicking the doors of uh, heaven down saying, I made it, I'm here, look, I did it. No, you are poor blind, chained, a prisoner to sin, 
You were dead in your trespasses and sin. The only way that you came to Christ was with open hands, needy and desperate. That is humility. And that is the attitude that's supposed to mark the Christian, not just the beginning of your Christian life, but all throughout your Christian life. We are to be marked by humility, not knowledge, not theology, not how many Bible verses you've memorized, but each of us is to be marked by humility. Well, what exactly is humility? It's a compound word, and I love the way that Paul describes it here. It's to think or to judge oneself with lowliness, with lowliness. Now, for most of the Roman world, they hated, they despised the idea of unity or humility. Even in America today, the whole idea of humility is foolish. But not so when we open the Bible. But listen, I need to make a distinction because humility is not self-deprecation. It's not self-loathing. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to hate ourselves or to talk bad about ourselves. That is not humility. Paul's point is not to denigrate or disparage ourselves. Instead, what he wants us to do is to reject the notion that we're the center of the universe. That's what it is. It was C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And David Mathis, he just wrote this book. It came out this week, in fact, called Humbled. He elaborates on that thought when he writes this. Humility is not then preoccupied with oneself and one's own lowliness, but first mindful and conscious of God and his highness. Humility becomes conscious of self only with respect to God. If you're looking for the secret sauce of humility, just get to know God better. You get to know God better. You get to spend time with Jesus. And you look at the Gospels. No one is walking around with Jesus with their head up high, except the Pharisees, and they're always getting rebuked. You see Peter falling on his face. You see the disciples bowing low. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The more that you know Jesus Christ, the more humble you will be. And the only way, really, to maintain this mindset is if we clothe ourselves with humility. The Bible says over and over again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, Paul writing, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy. Very similar to Philippians 1.27. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. And he says this in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Colossians 3.12, Paul says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, look, because this is who you are, this is how you act. How do we act, Paul? He says right there, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see a theme here? First Peter 5.5, 5, Paul, or Peter writing to younger men, he says, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And he writes this, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, I have difficulty putting on my pants this morning because of this big old boot. 
but I made sure I put some pants on today. Every morning, we're in the habit of it. Put on some clothes. It's the right and decent thing to do. How often are we thinking about clothing ourselves in the morning with humility? It's hard to do that if the first thing you do is reach for your phone or put on the TV or read the news. It's a lot easier when your first reach is for the scriptures and you're reminded of who you are in Christ. But every morning, church, we are to clothe ourselves in humility. Um, Sometimes this might come as a shock to you, but sometimes I'm just a jerk to my wife. Not loving, not compassionate, not considerate, not tender, not patient, and on and on it goes. And it's not just my wife, but it's my kids as well. And typically, I can tell how I get there. I get there because I have not clothed myself with humility. I'm not thinking rightly about God and myself. Church, every single day, we need to be clothing ourselves with humility. Humility is elusive. Uh, One writer said it's something that we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have attained. When we set aside self and mortify the desires for self-glorification, we receive glory. But if we try and steal glory away from God, he will humble us, like Peter and James say, because God hates, hates, and resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So listen, we're to think rightly about ourselves. We're to consider ourselves in relation to others. And when you are clothed in humility, you are focused on God. You're focused on other people. You're not focused on self. So we're to mature in humility. And the byproduct of Christ-minded humility will produce what it says right here, a regard for one another, a regard for one another. The ESV If you have the ESV, it translates this, you're going to count others. The NIV says we will value others. The King James says we esteem others. But this idea of regarding others is more important than yourself. It's a a mathematical term. It's very interesting. And it conveys the idea of you're making calculations in your head. You you know you do this. You, You determine if someone is worth your time, worth your effort worth your energy. And every day, whether you're conscious of it or not, you are making value judgments. You're balancing the scales and saying, does this person really deserve my time? If you don't spend time with them, if you don't think about them, if you don't pray for them, if you don't check in on them, if you're not helping disciple them, if you're not loving them, if you're not caring for them, if you're not serving them, then no, you don't. Very simple. It's mathematical relationships. Now, Granted, I realize you can't do that for everybody, but you don't have to do that for everybody. What about the people the Lord has put in your life who have needs? Are you meeting those needs? I can tell you, without um, exaggerating the truth, that this church has not only done well at loving and caring for one another's needs, but I think that we're excelling. And I would just say, church, let's excel still more. I am so blessed when I hear about people being taken care of, whether it's new parents, whether it's someone sick with COVID, whether it's someone injured. I just love how we're meeting needs here at our church. I am so thankful for that. And I just want to encourage you, let's continue to grow in that. But look, Paul, when he says you need to consider someone as more important than yourself, he's not talking about intrinsic value 
He's just talking about have a personal commitment to regard someone else as more important. And you say, how do we do that? The solution is not to necessarily think people are better than you. It's not helpful to have an Eeyore around you, right? Oh, I'm so bad. You're so good. I'm so bad. Everyone's better than me. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, no, look, we need to just view someone as more significant, to care about their personal holiness, to care about their joy, to make sure their needs are being met. That is what it means to count others as more significant than yourself. It just means you're not always the priority. You make other people the priority, which means a lot of times you have to die to self because I would rather not talk to this person right now. I would rather not do that. I, I, I'm, I'm tired. I've already spent hours working. I really feel like making a meal or buying a meal or, or going and doing that thing or helping somebody move. But you put that to death in order to prioritize other people. That's what that means. Christ-like humility will prioritize others. And we see that throughout Philippians. Paul says, look, I want to just go home and be in heaven. I want to go home and be with the Lord because that is far better. But for your sake, I want to stay. That's what Paul says. Jesus, as we see in chapter two, was willing to die for the sake of believers. Paul was willing to be poured out as a drink offering for the believers. Timothy in chapter two as well, willing to serve other believers. Epaphroditus was willing to die in order to serve other believers. That's what it means to put others ahead of yourself. Look, we won't be able to regard others as more important than ourselves if we only view ourselves as important. And you say, well, okay, how, how do we do this? Well, what's the, what's the instruction? Last thing, look at verse four. Paul says, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And you say, what does it mean to look out for the interest of others? Paul is not giving us any new revelation. He's simply reiterating what Jesus said. Jesus said this, love your neighbor as what? One more time, love your neighbor as self. Don't buy into the psycho babble that you don't really love yourself and you need to learn how to love yourself before you can love others. Because Jesus says you love yourself just fine. We're constantly thinking about ourselves and our needs. The Bible just says, look, don't be so self-focused. The same kind of preoccupation and determination and planning and attention and energy you give to yourself, just give it to other people. Give it to other people. You want to be mentally, physically, spiritually healthy? Yeah? Want that for other people. Do you give others the kind of consideration and priority that you give yourself? Do you pray and think and speak and give and calendar plan and prioritize and spend on others? Do you lay down your preferences and desires in order to see someone else excel? That is what it means to put others above yourself, to consider others as more important than yourself. Paul literally says we are to be about the things of others. And look, I can't go into the specifics because Paul doesn't. That's the Holy Spirit's job to apply this to you. How will you do that? Who will you do it to? To what extent will you do it? I don't know, and I really don't care. You don't have to tell me. The, the key is just to do it. The Lord has put the needs in your life. You know those needs. People need to express those needs. 
We see that with a prayer request. We want to meet those needs as best we can. You say, well, Dom, I need a little bit more. How can you help me here to be more considerate of others? Let's just start by getting our priorities right. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said this. He said, if you want to experience joy, then you have to prioritize the spelling. I love this. Joy, our daughter's middle name. In your priorities, Jesus is first, others are second, and you are always last. That'll be helpful. Prioritize those things and you will have joy. What about spiritual needs? One of the best ways to meet spiritual needs is to pray for one another. Take out your membership directory. There's lots of people on there. Pray for them. Call them. Let them know that you're praying for them. When they have a prayer request, call them and check to see how the Lord's answering those prayers. Discipleship, accountability, all of those things, those spiritual needs, that is regarding one another is more important than ourselves. Emotional needs. Um, there are so many in our church that are so good at just listening and comforting and coming alongside to help. Those are real tangible things that you can do. Weeping with those who weep. I know Jake lost a family member, grandpa. Satomi lost dad. We have a friend who lost a mother-in-law. Uh, there, there's been a lot of loss of life, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. It means so much to get a phone call. It means so much to know that people are praying. Those are meeting physical, spiritual needs, financial needs, providing meals, helping people move. All those things is loving one another and is regarding others as more important than yourself. And let me just end with this, church. Just imagine if our whole world obeyed this single command. What would the world be like if we actually obeyed this command? How different would your home look if you obeyed this command? Your spouse relationship, your parent-child relationship. Paul asks in verse 2, look, do you love me enough to want to help me? Then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Stand together. Strive together. Work together. Have the same mind. Have the same purpose. Be united I want to close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on this text. He writes this. He says, I am told that I am to esteem others better than myself. And there's only one thing that can make me do that. And thank God it does make me do it. It is this. When I read the Bible, I see the sinful nature that is in me. I see my failures. I see my shortcomings. But even then, there's a tendency in me to defend them. There's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. We sang that in the song just a while ago. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. The doctor continues, he says this, nothing else can do it. When I see that I'm a sinner or feel lost or condemned or helpless and that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can make a man esteem others better than himself. Nothing but the cross of Christ can give us the spirit 
of humility. We need to see this truth. We need to receive the Holy Spirit. It is only when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts that we will be able to love and have this tenderness and compassion toward others. And I think that's a perfect segue as we go to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are all guilty, guilty, guilty of being proud and selfish and self-seeking. Lord, it's just in our DNA. We're, we're hardwired to be all about ourselves. And we recognize that it is not consistent with the gospel and certainly not consistent with the character of Christ. And so, Lord, would you please forgive us? We need to spend uh, significant time, thoughtful time, just meditating on the cross, recognizing that it is the Son of God, the all-glorious one, the creator of the universe, the one who is perfect in your attributes and perfections. That is the one who came to this earth, who endured the evil of men unjustly, but you did that willingly on our behalf. Oh, what great love, what great affection, what great compassion, what great mercy and grace that you, Lord Jesus, would come and die for us. And the proper response, Lord, is, is not to glory in ourselves, not to glory in our intellect and our abilities and our talents and our gifts and our wealth and finances and family and pedigree. Our only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to glory in that, to find our joy, our satisfaction, our identity, our significance in who Jesus is and what he has done and what he promises to do. We pray this in his name. Amen.